Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to episode number 164 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi, and I'm joined by Tony Pauline, as always. And we're coming off a week that saw Trevor Lawrence return with a 400-yard passing day against Pitt. Michael Penix Jr. tears ACL in the same knee he injured back in 2018. And Indiana's quarterback before Penix, Peyton Ramsey, watched his eighth-ranked Northwestern team fall to previously 1-3 Michigan State. Now, speaking of Michigan State, they're currently set to play Ohio State this weekend, but even if that game gets played, the COVID-related cancellation of Michigan-Maryland this weekend puts Ohio State's Week 15 game against the Wolverines in jeopardy. And if that game is canceled, the Buckeyes would not have enough games played to qualify for the Big Ten title game, which would potentially have college football playoff implications. Tony, have you heard anything about how the situation could work itself out if Ohio State indeed fails to meet the six-game minimum instituted by its own conference? Yeah, I've not heard anything personally, but it wouldn't surprise me if the Big Ten does what the Pac-12 has been doing, and that is pairing teams who had their games canceled because their opponents fell below the, the COVID protocols uh, and maybe having an Ohio State play hypothetically a, a Minnesota if Minnesota's opponent, you know, can't play or, or another team, another big uh, 10 team uh, who has an opponent canceled because of too many scholarship players testing positive for uh, COVID-19. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a tricky situation. And as we've discussed, um, you know, just the late start to the season that the big 10 got has kind of put them in this situation. And also the fact that they said, okay, we have an eight game schedule. You have to play at least six games to qualify for the title game for the conference. It's just, it's kind of crazy that a conference would almost hamstring itself in such a manner. You know, I guess, but you know, to be fair, I mean, is it right that say Ohio state gets into a conference championship game, wins the big 10 title, and then goes on to the playoff game, game winning five games when you may have a team that's got that played 12 games in the sec and has a one loss, one loss or two losses that are out of the uh, the semifinal or, or a team in the ACC that's out of it because they have one or two losses, uh, even though they played 11 or 12 games this season. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that kind of decision is, you know, up to the college football playoff committee and kind of what they determined to be important. But I mean, the, the fact that the big 10 would kind of do that and potentially hurt its own candidacy to make it to the college football playoff, obviously unbeknownst to them, they probably didn't think of it at the time, but putting that in could potentially keep Ohio state out. And therefore the possibility remains that the big 10 has no representation because they put those protocols in. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, we see what goes on in the NFL and the NFL adjusts as the situation calls for it. We saw it. I mean, Chris and I are taping this podcast on a Wednesday night and just a few hours ago, the game between the Steelers and the Ravens ended in a strange Wednesday afternoon kickoff because of what's going on. So It'll be interesting to see if, you know, maybe uh, the college football selection committee pushes things a week back or so to maybe help the Big Ten get an extra game in if they need to. 
Um, that's what the NFL's done. I mean, they're talking about a week 18 in the NFL in case there are significant number of cancellations, uh, which could affect playoff ranking. We'll see what college football does. Or we'll see if college football does anything similar to that. Now we'll get to this week's show in just a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. The NFL season, in addition to the college football season, is now officially in full swing, Tony. And while you may not be at the game this year, you could still be in on the action at Bet Online. One week after we discussed Matt Patricia as the favorite to be the next NFL coach fired, him and Bob Quinn are gone from Detroit. The Eagles are the next mess to discuss outside of our Jets, of course. And the odds say that Doug Peterson will not be coaching in Philly in 2021. Yeah, I don't know what those odds are, but there's a good chance that Peterson may not be coaching in Philadelphia if they continue struggling and really continue losing bad games. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. This week, Tony and I will go on the record with more QB discussion. We've talked about Zach Wilson's skyrocketing draft stock several times on the show this year. Last time we went on the record talking about Wilson, we chose between him and Trey Lance as the third quarterback off the board. We both sided with Wilson in that case, which at the time was probably kind of a hot take, maybe not so much now because he's only helped his case since. Meanwhile, Justin Fields finally looking human. Ohio State missing out on games left and right, as we discussed earlier. Tony, you released your first mock draft this week. It has Justin Fields at number two behind Trevor Lawrence. But some mocks out there now have Wilson ahead of Fields. Tony, is it a legitimate possibility that Wilson jumps not only Lance, but Fields as well? In my opinion, no. I mean, Zach Wilson has made a meteoric rise up draft boards because of his play this year. And he's got a good body of work, so he deserves a lot of credit. But, you know, it, it's sort of like the Zach Wilson jump Justin Fields is almost, in my opinion, the same conversation as to can Justin Fields close the gap to Trevor Lawrence and maybe be selected before Trevor Lawrence. Justin Fields had one game this year in which he really didn't play all that well. That was the Indiana game. Indiana's got a very underrated defense. Zach Wilson has played wonderfully this season, but he's played wonderfully against the the Texas States of the world, the Louisiana Techs of the world, the Northern Alabamas. So he really hasn't faced staunch competition, which is why a lot of teams are trying to get BYU onto the schedule, whether it be a Pac-12 team or even a Mountain West team like a San Diego State. I, I just think it's at this point in time, it's people trying to be controversial, trying to throw things out there. I really think there's no merit in the fact that Zach Wilson could be selected before Justin Fields, just like I thought there was no merit when people were saying Justin Fields could be selected or could close the gap and come very close to Trevor Lawrence. Yeah. I mean, if you look at these two quarterbacks, I mean, you know, Tony and I have gone on the record to use the name of the segment several times talking about how much we like Zach Wilson. We are probably higher than most people on Zach Wilson. I can't see him going over Justin Fields. I mean, I understand the idea that, you know, Justin Fields may only have a half season now. Um, you know, he had those struggles against Indiana, but as you said, that was one game and Indiana is a very good football team on both sides of the ball. They have a lot of talent and obviously the 2020 season is just quite disjointed in many ways, especially for the big 10, especially 
for the Pac-12, you know, these conferences that started late. It's going to be very difficult to get a real true read on, you know, the development and the growth of players in this particular season. Zach Wilson has been playing from the start, and obviously he has been playing very well. So if this is a full season and the Big Ten started in September, I don't think you're hearing this talk about Justin Fields possibly not being the second quarterback off the board. I think a lot of it has to do with just the circumstance and the fact that we haven't seen that much of Justin Fields this year. And, you know, maybe he hasn't been as lights out as he has been in the past, but I I think just the idea behind 2020 being the type of year that it's been, especially for these later starting conferences, it's hard to hold that too much against him compared to a situation where Trey Lance played one game. He only started for one year. It's not really a comparable scenario when you're talking about Trey Lance potentially falling for lack of starts and lower level of competition, Justin Fields just doesn't have those same issues. Remember Justin Fields up until the Indiana game looked outstanding. I mean, he was in fact playing lights out early in the season. They just, as you said, you know, they had game games canceled. It's been on and off with Ohio state, especially in recent weeks. And what sticks in people's memory is the last game. The last game was against Indiana. He didn't play all that well. And really, when you look back on it, in the past year and a half or two seasons, that's really the only game he hasn't played all that well. Zach Wilson, give him a lot of credit. I think he's going to interview well. I think he's going to interview off the charts, and people are going to be very impressed with them at the combine, if there is a combine, hopefully, or in individual work, uh, individual workouts and interviews, whether they're done face-to-face or on Zoom. And I think he's got that going on for him. But again, you know, Justin Fields is a tremendous passer. As I've said all along, it's no doubt in my mind that Trevor Lawrence is hands down the number one quarterback in this year's draft. But Justin Fields is not a bad consolation prize. As I said in the mock draft, which you just referenced, in most regular drafts, in, in, the, in the usual draft, a guy like Justin Fields would be the first pick of the draft. But this is not a usual draft in the, in the sense that you have a – basically knockout branded franchise quarterback at the top in Trevor Lawrence. And Justin Fields also isn't your standard. Oh, he's a run first mobile type of quarterback. I mean, he is a passer first. Yes. He has rushing ability. Yes. He can extend plays. He can scramble. He can create yardage with his legs, but he is a pass first quarterback who can win in the pocket. He can throw the ball accurately. You know, one of the best traits about Zach Wilson is he throws with great touch. He throws from, you know, several different arm angles and his passes are always on the money. Well, Justin Fields is not a guy that struggles in terms of accuracy for the most part. He's a guy who puts the ball where it needs to go. He places it so that his receivers can create yardage after the catch. It's not the same comparison when we were talking about Wilson versus Lance, when Lance is a guy who's got some hit and miss type of accuracy and consistency and an extra season really would have afforded him a lot more opportunity to improve on that. Fields has never had that issue. So it's not a situation where he's a guy that needed to improve his accuracy or needed to become a more consistent player with extra playing time. So even though I said there is a caveat certainly coming with the lack of games, and as you said, just the recent performances sticking more in people's mind, I just don't view that as a problem for Justin Fields or anything that I would be concerned about heading to the next level. And remember, you know, Justin Fields at Ohio State plays in an NFL pro-style type of offense where they use two tight ends, where, you know, it's not as wide open with four receivers and, and he could sit back there and pick and choose because everything is so spread out. I mean, he plays in an NFL system in a very good conference that has good defenders. 
which I think puts him ahead of the curve, significantly ahead of the curve as for when it comes to Trey Lance, and also ahead of the curve when it comes to Zach Wilson, which means that his learning curve at the next level should be a lot quicker and a lot easier than the other two signal calls I just mentioned. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the Big Ten already on this episode. I guess we're kind of making up for lost time from earlier in the year. But that's also where our first Week 13 review takes us. Penn State's first win of the season came against Reeling, Michigan. We were watching, heading into the game, the Michigan injury statuses, specifically Quiddy Pay and Jalen Mayfield. Both were questionable heading into the game. Mayfield ended up sitting. Pay returned to the field, though. And if we had to choose one to play in the game, it definitely would have been Pay just to watch him go up against Penn State left tackle Rasheed Walker. And Walker in this one continued to impress, didn't face Pay on every snap or even the majority of snaps. But when he did, Pay couldn't get off blocks, was often moved far off his spot. Walker again showed off his power, plus the ability to slide out to the edge and seal at the second level. Pay did get around him one time because he just has great speed off the edge. Pay also showed speed in backside pursuit as well. Good motor stood his ground against Walker as well. A few times, I wouldn't say he was completely overmatched by any stretch, but I would say Walker won most of the one-on-one battles between the two of them. Pay did stack and shed and play generally better against the other blockers. He went up against whether he was lined up on the other side, whether he was lined up inside a defensive tackle, which he does at times. I uh, did have a couple missed tackles in the backfield on Sean Clifford when he kind of over pursued the play, when he could have had the opportunity for a tackle for loss, a mixed game. A mixed bag of a game here for Pay, but definitely another strong performance here for Walker. The fact that Quiddy Pay was out on the field, in my opinion, speaks volumes. I mean, he's a guy who's playing for a team that's going nowhere this year. The coach is going to get fired at the end of the season. They're not going to be in a bowl game where, you know, in a COVID situation where games are being canceled, players are opting out. Pay is a guy who was a potential late first round pick. I think more of a second round selection and he's out there competing with an injury. The one pressure he had against Walker was more Walker, not using, uh, uh, make, making good use of blocking angles, which is why pay took advantage of that. But he's a guy that just keeps going and going. He's got a great motor. He's smart. He plays tough football. And I think the fact that even though the stats weren't all that great, he's out there on the field competing, I think really bodes well for him Four tackles, the one quarterback hurry, which I just mentioned. Uh, so I, I think in that sense, it's a victory for pay. I think Walker, Walker's a guy who's almost there. He, as I said in Pro Football Network, he needs to polish his game. He's about 90% as far as you know, learning to finish blocks, learning to block with balance, uh, you know, learning to basically play through the end. And I'm not talking about intensity-wise. I'm talking about mechanics-wise but he's got a great amount of upside. He's got a great NFL build. He's strong, but he's also mobile. Terrific pass blocker who's also got run blocking strength and the ability to drive opponents off the line, as we saw, as well as the ability to get out to the second level. So while, you know, I think Walker deserves a victory here if you're basically keeping score, I also thought it was a terrific performance by Pay. Let me also say, you got to wonder at this point, if Jalen Mayfield is going to take the field again this season for Michigan. Uh, here's a guy who is probably a late first round pick. I had him at the bottom of round one in my mock draft at pro football network, but he's injured. Michigan's now having games canceled. He was, he initially announced that he was going to opt out of the season before he came back in. So I highly doubt if we're going to see uh, Jalen Mayfield again this year. And even 
with Mayfield not on the field, the two pass rushes from uh, Penn State, Jason Owe, as well as uh, Shaka Tony, really did nothing. I mean, Shaka Tony, when he's good, he's been outstanding this year. But when he's bad, he disappears. One tackle in the game against Michigan, one pass defense, one quarterback hurry. Owe, who I grade as a fourth rounder, and I've seen some people have him the first round, one pass defense, three tackles, no sacks, no quarterback hurries, uh, no tackles for loss. So, I mean, even with Mayfield on the sidelines, neither Owe or Shaka Tony really performed well on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, Tony, just like the last time we watched Tony against Maryland, I mean, he was a complete ghost in this game. You mentioned one tackle. I mean, when he's given the edge, and I mean handed the edge, he can get pressure, but he can't shed blocks at all. Doesn't really have that great closing speed you want from your pass rushers. And, you know, we talk about Quiddy Pay having an excellent motor. Shaka Tony's motor runs pretty hot and cold. I mean, there were several times in this game where I watched him just kind of jog down the line of scrimmage when the play went away from him. I'm just really not looking to get involved if he's not directly involved in the play. I mean, based on how this game went for both of these guys, as you said, if Mayfield's on the field, he definitely would have won this battle, which was already kind of a lopsided battle heading in. I thought Owe, you know, had his moments. He looked much better than Tony did, at least ended up having three tackles on the day. Um, you know, he gets good extension into blocks, which allows him to stack and shed a little bit, which Tony has shown no ability to do. Some decent bursts around the edge. I mean, he even dropped into the flat on several plays, broke up a pass, um, you know, I don't know that he succeeds much if Mayfield's on the field, but at the very least, I at least saw some things from Owe that I have not seen from Tony in two games that we've watched him so far this year. You know, which is why Tony's graded as a late round pick by scouts. I mean, I was fooled to believe early on, I believe it was the Indiana game where he had a terrific game that, you know, maybe he was coming of age, but he's just shown himself to be very, very streaky. He's an undersized college defensive end, as is Owe, who's going to have to learn to play stand to stand up over tackle and play three, four outside linebacker. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned, it's not going to be a big learning curve for Justin Fields. I believe it's going to be a big learning curve in every aspect for Shaka Tony. Now, another Big Ten matchup in the trenches happened Friday. Nebraska left tackle Brendan James against Iowa defensive end Chauncey Golston. The only problem in this particular game is that they never really went up against each other. Golston pretty much stayed anchored to the left side of the defense, and he played well, four tackles, one for loss, showed some good speed to win around the edge, one inside with quickness and counter moves. You know, we discussed heading in that he is an all-around player who can, you know, win inside, outside versus the run versus the pass. He sealed the win for Iowa in this one on the final play of the game defensively, one immediately to the inside, quickly closed to Adrian Martinez to force a fumble. On the other side, I thought James also played pretty well. No one really got by him. Does have kind of a squatty build, which is why most feel he's going to have to move off of left tackle at the next level but he's really hard to get around, quickly gets his hands into defenders, holds up well at the point, even got out in front of plays a couple of times, getting out to the second and even the third level. There was one run, he was 15 yards downfield. You know, I wish we could have seen these two go up against each other a little more often, especially since both were on their games. I mean, Golston, in my opinion, is one of the more underrated defensive linemen uh, as far as senior NFL prospects are concerned. Most scouts have him graded as a six-round uh, prospect. I have him as a fourth rounder because of that motor, because of the quickness, the movement skills. He's 6'5", 265 pounds. So we know he's, he's got some growth potential, which he's going to have to meet. His biggest problem is getting off blocks. But the guy shows up and plays every week. And this is going back, you know, through his junior season. If you watch the 2019 film, when he really caught my eye. I, I think Jameis is a good player. The problem is, is 
he's playing left tackle for Nebraska, and he's not going to be a left tackle at the next level. He's either going to be a right tackle, maybe guard. He's fundamentally sound. Uh, he, he's a little bit heavy-footed. He's not a zone blocker, but he uses a great body positioning. He uses great mechanics. He's tough. He's also smart. He gets the most from his ability. The problem is, is like you said, they weren't matched up, which is surprising to me because I thought if they were matched up with the speed and explosion and, and the burst that Golson have, I, I thought he would have been able to exploit uh, – uh, Jameis, but they never lined them up head to head. Still, I, I would agree with you. I thought both guys played very well, even though they didn't play against each other. Flying south now to the SEC with the weather getting colder, where Alabama rolled Auburn 42-13. We were watching the performance of Patrick Sertan the second, currently a top four pick in Tony's first mock draft that we've been discussing all show. We were watching him against Auburn wide receivers Seth Williams and Anthony Schwartz. Williams, just three catches for 17 yards. But man, those numbers could have been so much better if he didn't drop an easy long touchdown catch late in the first half. Could have also cut Auburn's deficit from 21-3 to 21-10. But Williams got deep because Sertan lost him in coverage and couldn't catch up. Schwartz had a team leading five catches for 60 yards. Extends nicely to catch passes off his frame. And for a guy who is so fast and his game is very reliant on speed, he's pretty sturdy too. He can bounce off tackles. After the catch, didn't really get much one-on-one action against Sertan. Alabama actually played a lot of zone coverage in this one as well, so Sertan wasn't really manned up too often against either guy. Tony, what'd you see in this one? Well, you know, you mentioned the, the drop by Williams, and I would agree with you. I think the bigger issue with the drop is the is the quarterback, Bo Nix. He's a terrible passer. I, I mean, I would I think if if his last name wasn't Nix. Auburn probably would have swapped him out and put somebody else in the lineup. In fact, that's uh, Malzahn probably should have done that. But the problem with Nix is his passes are all over the place. You know, you talk, uh, the, we saw the drop or if you watched the game, you saw Williams drop that pass, but the week before he made just a sensational catch. I mean, one of the most athletic re- acrobatic receptions I've seen. My point being, the point being is I don't think these receivers are able to get into a rhythm with Bo Nix because he is such a wayward passer. He is so inaccurate. I mean, and I'm not talking about statistical accuracy. I'm talking about, you know, if the ball is in the receiver's vicinities, they got to leave their feet. They got to just backwards. They got to extend and expose themselves to getting slaughtered at the point of attack because he's all over the place. He just sprays his throws. He's exciting. He runs the ball well, but he's just not a good passer, which I think has really led to uh, – a lot of Auburn's downfalls because they've got some offensive talent. You talk about Schwartz, the, 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 the bigger irony of Schwartz is they don't seem to use his deep speed all that much. Five receptions, 60 yards, 12 yard average. I, I don't see them uh, a lot of go routes with Schwartz, which you think that would happen since he's got, uh, he's considered one of the faster players uh, in college football. Certain, He's a physical beast, and he's a guy who makes some incredible plays at times. But he also has mental lapses. He also struggles with his back to the ball at times, which is why you get basically you had that breakdown in coverage that you mentioned. Their other cornerback, Josh Job, who a lot of scouts feel could be a late-round pick, he played very well throughout the game. Ten tackles, had a pass breakup, was constantly in on the action. So really, I think Job, uh, the other uh, – Alabama cornerback that we really never didn't talk about understandably. So because there's so much other outstanding talent on the field, I think he's a guy who uh, came away as a winner right now. I have Job actually as a fifth round pick 
terrific size, got to polish his ball skills, but he had a, ter- he had a real good game against Auburn. Yeah. And you mentioned those 10 tackles for Jobs. I mean, this is a guy who is not afraid to come up hard against the run, not afraid to come up and lay, lay a hit on a receiver, making a short catch or running back in the running game. So he has that part of his game certainly down, obviously has some work to do um, in terms of breaking up passes and, and in coverage, but you know, you do want corners and you do like to see corners who come up hard against the run, especially if they aren't elite cover guys. And the thing you mentioned about Knicks and, and Schwartz and the way they use them, I, I honestly think that sometimes the fact that Bo Nix is all over the place, which is, is literally a note I took in this game, that he just his throws were all over the place. I mean, he was sailing passes high to Seth Williams. I mean, how do you throw high to a guy who's 6'5"? It's really beyond me sometimes. But he also sets up Seth Williams to make some of these spectacular catches uh, that you're talking about that make the highlight reels and that really allow NFL teams to say, wow, this guy has an insane catch radius and he can come down with a lot of these wayward passes. Now, you don't expect the passes to be that bad once he gets to the NFL level. Obviously, there are a handful of NFL teams that uh, you might expect that. But for the most part, you expect those passes to be better. But in that sense, I almost think it helps Seth Williams a little bit because you can see some of the ridiculous plays that he can make. Whereas with Nick's throwing deep to Anthony Schwartz, they just try to get the ball in Schwartz's hands. I feel like on screens and on short crosses, they want to let him do things after the catch, but they just are not interested in going deep to him probably because they just have no confidence that Bo Nix is going to, you know, hit him in stride and these balls are going to get underthrown and intercepted. He puts a guy like Seth Williams in perilous positions. I, I mean, you know, because Williams is a competitor. He's going to go up and try and come down with a difficult perception. And he just, it's, it's a situation where he's got to leave his feet, extend his hands over his head. And it's just his entire body is exposed uh, to, to getting uh, slammed by the defender. And, you know, you expect that to happen on occasion, but it's constantly happening with Seth Williams as he tries to uh, come down uh, with those wayward passes. You know, Job, going back to Josh Job, he was given an early fourth round grade by some scouts. Uh, even though he's a third-year junior. And I think it's more the size-speed factor. Six-foot tall, 185 pounds. He's a guy who runs in the mid-four-fours. So I I think they're looking at him as someone who has got a great NFL body, terrific size for a cornerback. He's just got to really polish those ball skills. Now, our last look back at Week 13 is a Big 12 matchup between Texas Tech and Oklahoma State. We wanted to watch Red Raiders wide receiver TJ Vasher and Cowboys cornerback Rodarius Williams. A couple matchups early, challenging Williams in tight coverage. Neither pass was caught. Williams did do a nice job competing at the catch point. After that, Vasher was quiet until a third quarter crosser for his only catch of the game. Even on that play, he looked kind of slow and lumbering. Really has been phased out of Texas Tech's offense, it seems, since his two-game accidents related to COVID-19 and even before that. It uh, looks like Eric Izukanma has taken his role, had seven catches for 183 yards and two touchdowns in this game. Williams, he got hurt mid-game, didn't return, so really didn't see much from this matchup, unfortunately. We did see a lot from Tylen Wallace on the other end, though. Seven catches for 129 yards and one touchdown. Really made some great adjustments on balls, showing off those ball skills. Great concentration on a TD catch that was actually tipped by the corner before he made the catch and dragged his foot in the corner of the end zone. So much going on on that play, and Wallace was able to do it all. Impressive breaking tackles after the catch, too. Overall, even though we didn't see much from Vasher versus Williams, really fun game overall, back and forth, high scoring. What do you think, Tony? You know, when we talked about Vasher a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that I had heard he had COVID, which is why he had a slow return. Did nothing on Saturday. Actually, I I was uh, 
it was pointed out to uh, to me that Vasher put a video on Twitter of him <laughs> coming out of the hospital with a cast or with, with his knee wrapped up in a wheelchair, saying that his surgery was done. So uh, if, if you, there's nothing about the surgery, but there is saying they're saying he's gone for the rest of the year. So he had some sort of injury, or, or he sustained some sort of injury in that game. Not that he was ever a big factor. Not that he's been a big factor this season. And the bottom line is this. I graded Vasher as a fourth, maybe early fifth round pick. There were some scouts that graded him as early as the third round. Vasher may not get drafted next April uh, because of the poor season he had. Now the injury. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a shame because he was a real good, a good, real good receiver the prior two years. Williams has been up and down. Williams, I think, he probably played his best football two years ago as a sophomore when I had him highly graded. I don't think he's progressed that much. Can't say that about, Ty, about Wallace. Wallace is not just a good pass catcher. He's good in every aspect, as I noted on Pro Football Network. He's a terrific blocker. He runs good routes. He's got excellent route discipline. He's strong running after the catch. He's not a blazer. He's not a guy that's going to go to the combine or run the four threes. But, you know, think of Brandon Ayuk last year. That's sort of similar receiver get separation, fundamentally sound catching the ball, and just does the little things right. Now it's time to look ahead to week 14, and we're going to go right back to Oklahoma State, where a trio of Cowboys defenders not named Rodarius Williams match up against TCU tight end Pro Wells, who has 11 catches for 177 yards and three touchdowns the past five games, including two touchdowns last week against Kansas. That aforementioned trio, linebackers Ahmed Agbang-Bumiga, and Calvin Bundage and safety Trey Sterling, all of these guys, including Wells, projected as late rounders or free agents entering the season. Bundage, coming back after missing 2019 with a back injury, has returned with six tackles for loss and four and a half sacks this year. Agbun Bumiga leaves the team with 62 tackles, has made some plays behind the line of scrimmage as well. Sterling's not far behind his teammate with 57 stops. Big improvement from Sterling so far in 2020. Tony, with these matchups, what specifically are you watching? The thing about it is this, the two Oklahoma State linebackers are primarily best against the run or making plays up the field. Uh, the safety is sort of the same situation. He's more of a downhill safety and really doesn't show great range. Pro Wells is an incredibly athletic tight end. 6'2", 255 pounds, runs and plays in the low four sevens at times. He really plays the position like a possession receiver. The problem for Wells is he's not really been all that active. He's not been super productive. He showed flashes in 2019. I expected him to take his game to the next level this year. Never really did that. Uh, but when he makes receptions or he makes some athletic catches, you're like, wow, he just doesn't do enough of it. I'm told that Wells is seriously considering entering the draft. The only way he really should do that is if he has a flurry of activity and productivity the rest of the season. Otherwise, I think he's going to be sorely disappointed. He's one of those guys that he's got incredible upside and he could be a second day pick, but with the productivity or the lack of productivity he shows on the field, he's probably going to be a late round pick, maybe an undrafted free agent uh, against Oklahoma state. This is a situation where he can exploit everything. The linebackers are not that great in coverage. They're better moving up the field. The safety is not good sideline to sideline. So this is made for Pro Wells to have a big game 
and really start on the path of being more productive on a consistent basis if, in fact, he is leaning towards entering the draft, which I'm hearing he is at least considering at this point. Back to the Big Ten again and back to Ohio State as well, where guard Wyatt Davis and center Josh Myers match up against Michigan State defensive tackle Naquan Jones. Bit of a bounce-back season for Jones in 2020 after a poor 2019 Already more tackles than last year in eight fewer games, four tackles for loss as well. Davis and Myers, you're going to come at him with kind of contrasting styles. Davis is a guy, great on the move, perfect type of zone blocking guard at the next level. Solid size, if not great strength, whereas Myers does have great strength, but not as effective on the move. Both come with higher draft grades than Jones, at least they did entering the season. So it'll be interesting to see how Jones performs against two very different types of opponent. Yeah much higher draft grades than Jones. You're looking at a potential first round pick in Wyatt Davis, a potential second day pick in Josh Myers versus a guy who as a sophomore had been projected as a second day pick. And then his game leveled off, even regressed. You talked about how he's kind of turned the wick up this year, but he's, he's brought in and out of the lineup. He's very underwhelming. He's been a bit of an underachiever. He is going to play in the hula ball, which is a good thing. Uh, but Jones has all the ability in the world. He's got size. He's got power. He's relatively athletic. He moves well. And if you go back and watch the 2018 film, you're kind of awed by the fact that you see this 320 pound uh, interior defensive lineman easily move around the field, rush the passer, the closing burst, the lateral movement skills. But really, the last, especially off of 2019 and the beginning of uh, this year, it's been a situation where he's just a big-bodied guy and really has not fulfilled his promise. If this game is played, which we hope it is, because as we mentioned at the top, you know, we don't know what's going on with Ohio State. If it is played, Ohio State coach Ryan Day is not going to be on the field. If this game is played, this is going to be the toughest test of the season for Jones. I mean, he's going up against two established linemen, guys that are going to go high, guys that come to play week in and week out. So this could be a, a, a statement game for Jones, who, as I said, is scheduled to play in the Hula Bowl in January. Now we'll finish up today's show with two games involving the state of Oregon. First, Oregon faces Cal. Ducks wide receivers Johnny Johnson the third and Jalen Red face a challenge against Bears cornerback Cameron Bynum. Johnson, 12 catches for 162 yards and one touchdown in four games this year. Similar size and speed to Bynum, so you would think that they'd match up more often than not in this one because Red is smaller. He has great speed. Just for reference, back in 2016 at the Under Armour All-America Skills Challenge, he ran faster than both Jalen Rager and Jerry Judy, two guys who were first-round picks last year. Not saying Red is going to be anywhere near a first-round pick, but Bynum's biggest drawback is speed. Probably not going to break 4-5, in the 40. So if he does go up against red, it'll be interesting to see if he can keep up. I like Bynum. I mean, he may not break four or five, five. Uh, he doesn't play that fast. That's for sure. He's good. He's got good football skills. He's tough. He's got good ball skills. He's been a very consistent cornerback for Cal literally in the past three years. But like you said, the big downside, the big downfall is, is speed. So we're going to have to see how he matches up against the size of, of Johnson, who is, who he's evenly pitted with as well as the speed of, of red. I mean, he can't let red behind him. He can't be playing catch up because that's really going to hurt his draft stock. And he's a good cornerback. It's a matter of, you know, how does he play against the faster receivers and how does he time in the 40 before, uh, before the 2021 draft? 
Now, Oregon State faces off against Utah this weekend. This is just the Utes' third game this season due to COVID-19 issues. Beavers running back Jamar Jefferson, 675 yards and seven touchdowns through four games this year, 120-plus yards in every game. Utah, meanwhile, has allowed 181 rushing yards on 57 carries against USC and Washington. A big part of that good run defense has been linebacker Devin Lloyd, 22 tackles in two games, three for loss, a fast linebacker with decent size. Jefferson has good size himself, decent speed. The conference's top running back so far statistically in yards per game against its top run defense, albeit in only two games. What gives here, Tony? Yeah, I spoke to a lot of West Coast scouts who told me outright that Jamar Jefferson is the real deal. I I mean, they think he is a legitimate next-level prospect who is a a potential middle-round pick. I mean, Jefferson is playing head and shoulders above his more well-known teammate, Hamilcar Rashad Jr., who, you know, sort of like uh, Naquan Jones, who I mentioned earlier, is really is barely showing up, especially this year. I mean, he's out there jogging around the field. You talked about Shaka Tony doing that earlier when we broke down the, the Penn State-Michigan uh, game. That's uh, Hamilcar Rashad. And, and Johnson is the guy who's really taken the mantle at Oregon State as their best player. And NFL scouts believe that he is the real deal. Now, as far as Lloyd's concerned, what he is is he's a much faster version of Francis Bernard, a guy who made a lot of plays on the ball last year, looked very athletic, but was unable to uh, run under 4'8", which dropped his draft stock. I mean, Lloyd's got that speed. He's more of a 4'7 guy, goes about six foot one, 230 pounds, sideline to sideline, covers a lot of area, real good in pursuit. I had him graded as a fifth-round pick coming into the season, as we know, as you mentioned, Utah really hasn't had too much season this year. I, I am told that there's a chance that Lloyd could enter the draft. He's basically entertaining it. We'll have to see if he really improves his draft stock. Good player, but just really not enough games at this point in time to elevate him into those middle rounds, or at least into the early part of day three. And that's it for the 164th episode of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back next week with more on college football and the NFL draft. But until then, on behalf of Tony Pauline, I'm Chris Tripodi. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.